I looked at George Floyd and I thought of Kent State. And I thought of, hey, 50 years ago, we were watching a video where four of our peers were getting killed. Now, nothing was as visceral as seeing his face with that foot on it. But it was still, you felt like the country was coming after you. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with vibrance and energy. Zestful Aging podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow zestful ager. Our lovely music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who was a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more about Judy on her website, judybanker.com. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses and other offerings, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, as always, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side. So let's begin. We have a really fascinating interview with you for you today. We're going to talk about current events and a coming of conscience. And as you know, we're experiencing massive challenges with the political climate, racism, and the environment. The BLM protests remind some of us of the 1960s when Americans protested the Vietnam War. And today we're going to speak with writer, with writer Rita Dragonette about some of the parallels between now and the resistance to the Vietnam War. Her book, The 14th of September, is a coming of conscience book, and it demonstrates how the war had a profound impact on women as well as men. And here's a short description. In 1969, as mounting tensions over the Vietnam War are dividing America, a young woman in college on an army scholarship risks future and family to secretly join the anti-war counterculture and is ultimately forced to make a life-altering change as fateful as that of any lottery draftee. Welcome to the show, Rita. Thank you. I'm I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, I'm so glad. And we talked a little bit about your book um, and uh, the 14th of September and how it has some eerie parallels with what's going on politically right now in our world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think that um, uh, as a foundation, the intention I had with the 14th of September, which was based on experiences that I had during that time frame, late 69 and 70, which was, if you think about it, we had Nixon as a president 
we were all questioning for the first time. By that time, all elements of patriotism around the war had been gone. Nobody really remembered the objective other than America had never lost a war before and they weren't going to lose this one. And we felt a lot of things that were happening were pointless and also that we were powerless. In those mm -hmm. days, in those days, you could not uh, vote until you were 21. And the phrase was that you were um, too young, what, you were, you were too young to vote, but not too young to die. To die. I remember Meaning, that. Remember yeah. that, where you could go to Vietnam. And so the whole thing of we had lost, I, I personally feel like the um, conscience of my generation was was formed and the character of the of the generation was formed in the time between the first draft lottery and kent state which is what the book covers and it's because parallel to today everything was breaking down um, we were civil rights the beginning of women's rights all of the things that we knew about our history were gone we were the first generation to even be allowed to consider that we could change things but we didn't have the power to do it yet and we knew the wrong wrong person was in charge and we were being um with the lottery you know basically thrown for fodder until they could figure out what they wanted to do that's I the see. essence the essence of powerlessness so if you look at black lives matter you know you have you know everyone has let down so many of the people that are involved in that you know they they aren't able to elect the people that are going to foster the kind of uh, legislation that's going to protect them they've gone through the proper channels the proper channels have not worked just like they I didn't see. work back in the vietnam war so if you go through the proper channels and that doesn't work what are you left with what you're left with is something that is you're going to hit the streets you know, if, I always say if we had social media back in those days, the war would have ended a lot sooner. But we have it today and it's being used in different ways um, for organizing as well as, you know, screaming your positions. So it's interesting to watch the violence when you um, when you talk about parallels. I was actually in the first night of the riots in Chicago that happened about a month and a half ago. It was when they went down Michigan Avenue, which is Chicago's main thoroughfare, mm -hmm. um, and broke windows. Mm -hmm. And they had what they had done is they had funneled all the traffic away from the central business district. They thought that some of us cars were stuck in there because you couldn't get off on the exits and they put the bridges up. So here I was in my car. And, and driving right into the middle of this. And I thought, I have been here before. Oh, it was 50 goodness. years before, but I have been here before. I know I have to get out of here. And I ended up doing this incredible UE to be able to get out, which is not necessarily in my character, but I knew <laughs> I couldn't be in the middle of this. And somebody looked at me and they were carrying a, 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 a sign on cardboard. And it said something like, um, if you're not in it, you're complicit. And I thought, oh my God, I just wanted to put my arms around her and say, if you only knew, because that's what we used to say. And that's the oh, main, wow. it's the main character's dilemma on the 14th of September is that here she is in the, on an army scholarship. And she's wondering, am I complicit just by taking their money, even though I'm going to school to become a nurse? which is a good thing. And that's the dilemma she has. So all of those emotions just came back. I mean, I knew that was gonna be a bad night and I knew the minute the first glass broke, people would stop listening. 
because we had been through it before. Now you're not, it's not necessarily the most correct thing to draw parallels like that, but it's something I deeply believe in is that we keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why change takes so long. I see. So you're talking about how the system is really broken. And it was demonstrated, <laughs> funny use of word, but it, it was um, illustrated uh, in uh, the Vietnam era, where this, you knew the system was broken. And you started, I was a little bit young um, at that time. So I didn't have a, a good appreciation for this. But you're describing sort of having the light turned on and saying, wait a minute, these systems that are supposed to protect us are kind of throwing us to the wolves here. Yeah, the, I think whenever something does not have the right foundation, eventually it's going to crack. And you have to appreciate history. I mean, um, our parents were World War II generation. Mm -hmm. that, you know, that whole world had blown up with the war, right? They came back in the 50s and they wanted calm. <laughs> then, ah. And those kinds of things were happening. But, but we still had, you know, tremors underneath it. You know, we had civil rights issues. We had absolutely mm -hmm. women. Women were very resentful of, you know, having been out and involved and then had to come back in again. And those things had to explode. And then when they went into Vietnam, they basically tried to apply a lot of what they knew in World War II. Ken Burns does this beautifully in his mm. uh, NPR mm. series, Vietnam War. But they, they took their learnings from World War II and the Korean War, and they tried to apply it to Vietnam, and it didn't fit. Mm -hmm. And so that's why nothing worked. But they couldn't, they couldn't give up, and they couldn't look at it and stand back and be objective like we can now 50 years from now we're looking back going oh my god they thought we were invaders this was they were they were mm -hmm. fighting for their country they weren't trying to protect communism it wasn't a domino theory it was a you're going to take my house theory you know just like oh. we just like we had done in the revolutionary war which is why ho chi minh kind of thought the americans would understand them better than the french you know I it's just see. very interesting everything just ties together but the way that really plays out in the story i'm telling is that i do think that history is is dictated by the by the elders but it's played out by the young. Mm -hmm. So think about that during Vietnam. The average age of the men going to Vietnam at a time where the world, by the way, was every bit as polarized as it is right now. You could not talk to anyone across a dinner table. Uh -huh. It was either you're, you want to stay in Vietnam because no America has never lost a war before and we're not going to do it now. Or you'd say, look, let's, you know, let's call it a draw and save lives. And those two points of view were clashing like crazy, just like Republicans and Democrats are clashing like crazy today uh, over I a see. variety of things. But you literally, you know, you couldn't have friends that were on either side of it, whatever. And in the middle are people with no power. So the average age was like 19 mm -hmm. to 20 of a young draftee. And, mm -hmm. and part of the point of my book that I'd like to get on here too is that, um, a lot of when you talk about war and you talk about male, and in those days it was, yes, the men were the ones that were being drafted. But my story takes place on the college campus, which is was the largest concentration of draft age men. And, and we were all together. 
you know, we all thought in the counterculture that we were going to have this new equitable world and fighting the war was going to be a model coming out of it. And we would all be together in it. And the people that were being pulled for the lottery were your boyfriend, your brother, the guy who sat next to you in study hall. I mean, it was definitely we were all one mm -hmm. and it never occurred to anyone that it would affect women and men differently. You know, it's just we had different things that would happen, but we were all in it together. It's now, really um, interesting what you say about sitting at the dinner table, because I think what it looks like now, and I've had to work with clients on how to go. Well, this is pre-COVID, of course. How do I go mm -hmm. to Thanksgiving when I know my dad voted for Trump or my brother right. voted for Trump? How do I sit there? How do I bring my same sex partner to the dinner table? You know, all of this. And I think what you're saying is, in the Vietnam era, it was like, you're either you're you're either want to stay with the uh, the um, I don't know the power, or you're mm -hmm. a hippie. And something about protesting was you are not patriotic and you're bad. That's not what people who love America do. Right. And my um, and a, a good example is my parent. I had an unusual situation that both my parents were vets. Oh. And my mother actually saw more action than my father. She was overseas for three years. She was in Patton's army. She did surgery on the front in a tent. She helped to liberate Stalag 11 in Heidenheim, Germany. Mm. You know, it was all of this was going on. By the way, she was marginalized all the time because people, when she, if she ever talked about what she was doing, they'd say, yeah, you were just a nurse. But anyway, you had that and everything in our house was that way because my mother was still a practicing nurse. Our glasses were GI glasses, you know, <laughs> our our blankets were old army blankets. We had footlockers for trunks, you know. I wore as a we didn't call ourselves hippies by my time. We we were past flower power, but we called ourselves freaks and I wore my father's Eisenhower jacket. You know, oh. but it was a protest. That's and right. over the over the dinner table, it was you could not you could not get over that gap that they were 100% patriotic World War II. This is how things are, and they could not see that Vietnam was not the same thing. So you and experienced this this clash growing up personally. Yes, absolutely, mm -hmm. and and so you see that a lot. This I think everyone my my of my era just listens to some of the things that people are now saying out loud that we have learned over the last 50 years, even if we couldn't completely suppress feelings, there are things you don't say out loud and you don't admit you you feel. Back in when I was growing up, my father had, um, he was prejudiced. We used to say prejudice instead of racist. He was prejudiced against all but his own ethnic group. And even that he subdivided into lace curtain and shanty. You know, ah. it was just, he had, it was functionally. So it was somebody had to be lower than him. He's on one side of the dinner table. On the other side is my mother, who was the children, uh, a child of Danish immigrants. And the Danes are the ones like King Christian, when the Jews had to wear the gold star during World War II, he wore a gold star. Mm. So it was the absolute opposite. And here we were in the middle. And when he'd rant, there were three of us, we would just 
you know, you'd alternately sort of scream at something or you would just leave the dinner table one by one. Mm -hmm. It was just amazing. And then today when you go to Thanksgiving dinner, you know, I have some relatives in different parts of the country that are actually one was a birther and a real live birther. I couldn't believe it. And you just you just every time they try and bait you, you just change the subject, Uh you know, and sometimes you have to work really hard to just say, I'm really enjoying this meal without any conversation about that topic. And that's about the only way you can get away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, Reminds me of all in the family, why that became such a hit. Which is hysterical because my mother's name was Edith. (laughs) Although she was the antithesis of the one that was on it. And my father- my father used to call everyone a meathead. So um, we actually oh. thought that was that show was Archie. My father wasn't as um, as boisterous. He was a quiet, shy man, but he had, unless he was drinking, but he had very definite um, opinions, shall we say, that were born in the ghetto in the south side of Chicago. So oh, we are what our roots are. Uh, mm-hmm. For sure. Do you remember as a, a, as a young girl, starting to question do you remember when that you know that sort of veil of innocence was ripped off and you said wait a minute this doesn't really make sense to me and i'm um starting to get your own independent thoughts and starting to evaluate things for your own self do you remember what that was like and how old you were yeah well i think that i had a um the advantage that we had was we had these two parents at different poles of the dinner table that felt so differently about it. So it was like one had a good idea and one did not. And you could see what it was. They were also different religions and religion was very big when I grew up. And my father was uh, Catholic and my Mm -hmm. mother was Lutheran. But so we were raised Catholic and yet the admirable parent was not that. So we were constantly formed with this. But I do remember and I can't remember how young I was. But I have always been, my husband used to always say, I'm too logical. Things that didn't make sense to me is prejudice was not logical. It was not logical that somebody would like or not like you because of the color of your skin. Mm. Um, Prejudice against religion was not logical. We all had the same God. We were just going about it differently. Your (laughs) priest can marry and mine can't. You know, it was just that kind of none of that made logical sense to me and that's pretty much what my siblings came up thinking too um but it's because we had these two different forces i feel very bad for the people where both parents were sort of on the wrong side of history and raised children that way and they probably had their moment of enlightenment which i Mm -hmm. that is what i call a coming of conscience moment Mm -hmm. is they probably had it when they left home Mm-hmm. You know, if they went to college and were exposed to other things for the first time, but I had it very, very young because the nuns would denounce, you know, they'd say, you go home and tell your mother that she has to take you to confession. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's terrifying to tell a six year old, you know, it's like you can't take on your mother, you know, so all of that conflict, I think, just led to these things are not logical and they shouldn't be because they're not logical, you know. 
Hey everyone, I wanted to tell you about a powerful new tool that supports your mental and emotional health in what are extremely trying times. And you may remember that I've been a psychotherapist for 30 years and I'm always a little suspicious of products that claim to help us feel less anxious, depressed, or worried. But then I was introduced to a new kind of app called Cope Notes, and I have become a big fan. Cope Notes was developed by a guy who spent a lot of his life trying to figure out what might help support him through his own weekly psychotherapy sessions. Cope Notes is an app that gives you random texts through the day to break through some of the negative messages that might be repeating in your head. It's well-researched and has been a adopted by many mental health facilities. I highly recommend it. I think we can all use a little support right now. So check out copenotes.com forward slash zestful. I will receive a small portion of those proceeds. Um, and I'd love to hear your feedback about how it works for you. Now back to the show. I'm curious about something that you mentioned earlier and being in the middle now, really quite literally when you were uh, on Miss Michigan Ave in Chicago, how is mm-hmm. it for you emotionally? Because it's not, um, I mean, many of us are experiencing this uh, abreast and uh, the protesting and all of this in sort of in a new way, in a new light. I mean, we knew what happened with segregation. We've watched the films. We feel compassionate. But now we're marching. Now we're in the streets, and it feels different. I'm wondering what it was like for you. You've already been here. And I'm wondering what it's like for you to see George Floyd being murdered and all of the other uh, atrocities. Well, it brings up incredible emotions, and um, and I take it back to. I actually wrote a piece about this. I do take it back to. Um, here, here's one of the frustrating things: is that if you say something as a boomer, you know, you get marginalized for your opinions. Mm-hmm. But I'm gonna I'm gonna get past that because I looked at George Floyd and I thought of Kent State. And I thought of, hey, 50 years ago, we were watching a video where four of our peers were getting killed. Now, nothing was as visceral as seeing his face with that foot on it. Mm -hmm. But it was still, you felt like the country was coming after you. And I think that's what Black Lives Matter is saying. It's like, you guys have been coming after me. Look at this. This couldn't be a more visceral experience Mm -hmm. of it. We finally have to do something. Kent State was our sort of, we're trying to protest and have free speech and you're not listening to us that we want to end this war Mm. to the point where now you're shooting and Mm. killing us. And it's hard to overstate how significant that was in 1970 is that children were being shot by the government, Mm -hmm. you know, and it was, and largely white children, which really rank, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the end of the war. It took another five years to dribble out because of all those differences and because change is hard to make. And because that was presented, and you're seeing this now with Trump, the whole Kent State thing was presented or they tried to present it as we, it was our fault. 
You know, like mm -hmm. we were protesting inappropriately. We mm -hmm. were being bad to the National Guard, just like right now they're trying to make it sound like, you know, that they're demonizing both sides. Yes. You know, and they did exactly the same thing with that. And you That just, you were sort of the uh, terrorists, just like protesters exactly. now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Burning flags mm -hmm. and things like that, you know. And mm -hmm. so, so now they're taking down statues. We were burning flags. You know, it was just, it was symbolic of all these things. But this is what you do when you say, how do I feel about it? I feel like I have this phrase, it's the hamster wheel of history. We just keep going around the same things. And every decade or two, we go through the same things over and over again. I do feel that this is much worse than um, I remember it being in the 60s because the difference back then, and of course I was way at the end of the 60s, the difference back then is we wanted to break things up to create something better. You know, we wanted to, to you know, take that foundation down so that this would be an equitable world, all races, all people, all genders, everything together. Today, it feels like they're just trying, the Trump people are just trying to take things away simply because they didn't do it themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody else mm -hmm. did it. And mm -hmm. because it's there already, it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just, you know, even when people demonize corporations sort of anonymously in general, well, corporations also give us our jobs. They're not, they're not all Darth Vader. You know, there needs to be, um, they, they bring things that are good to us. Pharma companies, yes, some things are wrong, but those drugs are very important. We need to be able to live in the middle and in the balance. And we mm. don't, we're always on the, we're always on the history. You know, mm. we wouldn't want to live without those drugs again, you know? So let's go back and make how people can get them and pay for them equitable. Let's not stop them, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, same way with, you know, the, the corporations, the, you know, and all the tech people. We couldn't live in a world without tech now. It gives us wonderful things. We have an opportunity to get the regulations right so that we can still enjoy it and move forward, not demonize and destroy. And right. that's, that's the hamster wheel of history. Yeah. So, you know, we, we were talk we've been talking about different kinds of discriminations and you mentioned boomer and certainly we know that there's some, uh, eye rolling and some expressions. Hey, boomer. Okay. Boomer. All of that. What is it like for you now as a woman, middle age and beyond to experience some discrimination as a woman who is no longer, uh, you know, um, what would we call it? 20s, 30s, 40s. I don't know. I was wondering where you're going to go with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was no longer. Yes. Um. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's a good question. Like, how do we describe this? Middle age and beyond. Yeah, it's uh, part of it is um, amusing. Part of it is very frustrating. And most of it is, is just me kind of amusingly nodding my head going, well, we asked for it um, because I'm sorry, everyone thinks we do it the first time, but we did do this to our parents. Um, mm. You know, it was the generation gap that came out of my era. Um, we just felt like anything that was done before was not thought through. It was not worthwhile and it was not relevant. 
Um, now, now there's just so many more things that it's easy to be marginalized again. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, again, we're in history. You know, you get to the point where at a certain point you learn from experience of others and then you reject the experience of others and then you end up in the hamster wheel of history. Whenever I hear the phrase, okay, boomer, I have a blog and I even put it on the bottom and I said, boomers are okay. Ah, Uh, because I think I think we have things to teach just like, you know, we all got to the point where eventually we decided our parents, we started out thinking parents were brilliant, then we thought they were really stupid. And then as you got older, you thought, well, maybe not so much. (laughs) Maybe, maybe they really did know what was going on. And we're in the stupid phase right now. (laughs) You know, (laughs) but like I said, you sort of feel like, okay, it's inevitable. And we probably asked for it because that's what I mean, I remember things I said to my mother, and I can't believe I said it. And I hear those things being said to other people. And it's, it's inevitable. It's the rebellion of, of youth. Um, and I think we probably were arrogant, more arrogant than previous people because there were more of us. I actually am very intrigued by my generation. I think because there were more of us, I think we've been through a lot. I mean, we came out of school to this chaotic, terrible world of Vietnam. You know, and then we went through a lot of things. And I think anyone who went through that time still has deep in their DNA a desire to go back and finish the job of changing the world. Mm-hmm. And in our our later years, our last third, as I like to say it, you always wanted to do it. You wanted to do it through art. You wanted to go back volunteer. You wanted to do these things. And then we get hit with 9-11, the financial crisis. You know, all of these things at once and you feel very bushwhacked, you know, like now we aren't going to be able to to move on and go do those kinds of things. And you're running into attitude. Mm. So it's a it's an interesting generation, you know, Though, and, and, one and of we're the dreamers. Thing, go ahead. One of the things that you do now is mentor young writers. Can you talk a little bit about your literary salons? Yeah, I think that um, rather than say mentor, I think I come out of marketing. Um, I was in public relations for about 25 years. And I and I learned a lot, by the way, during my anti-war years about how important that your message is correct and it can get through. Mm-hmm. And when I was uh, working on my first book, the 14th of September, it took a long time because I was working and many other things. And I know how hard it was to get people to take you seriously. And once you came through to be heard and I, as I was putting this all together and moving into publication, other friends of mine were writing their first books and it'd be like, okay, when are you going to have a reading? And they'd go, oh, I, uh, how do I do that? (laughs) You know, I don't even know where to begin. So what I did is I started holding literary salons in my home where um, I would have a, a group. I have a pretty stable group of 25 to 30 people that are avid readers and curious about new material and new writers. And new writers don't have to be young writers. They can be 50 year old debut novelists. Mm -hmm. You know, they can be older than that. They can maybe have never written a novel. Maybe it's poetry. Um, Maybe it's a short story. It's something like that. But to have an audience and be able to sit 
very intimately in a room and it's not a book club because they haven't read your material ahead of time and you are introducing it to them as if you're in a reading in a bookstore but it's more intimate and then you get into incredible conversations and by the end of those things these writers have so much confidence and they also have a better idea of what it is about what they're writing resonates with their readers ah, because a lot like of a times, focus group oh yeah and it's and it's not so much that you rewrite it for that but you know what to emphasize at different times um i think when you're writing something you very definitely know what you're trying to communicate um, and it's list of priorities. These are the most important things and there's all these other things. And then you're always surprised when readers come to you and it's some kind of minor thing that people just responded to. Like I had one woman in an elevator stop me one day and she said, you know, I loved your book, but what I really liked was that even back then there were mean girls. And I <laughs> right. saw because I had mean girls in the anti-war thing. And she goes, and there was still mean girls. And I just, and we laughed and talked about the rest of it. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I would never have thought that would be something that would be her way into the book, mm -hmm. you know? Um, mm -hmm. So it's, that that's why it's so important. And so um, the literary community, I have to say, is very welcoming. Um, certainly there's lots of competition, but it's very welcoming. Um, uh, people are always writing articles about writing topics and techniques, and there are workshops everywhere. And writers love to be able to talk to other writers about, here's, here's what I did here, and here's what I see in your writing. And I think if you did this, that might help that problem. So it sounds it's, like uh, that might be a good way for people who have a, a book in them um, to uh, start out. Uh, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but sort of workshopping their idea and joining one of these salons, if possibly virtually at this point. Is that what you would recommend well, for people? What I always say to people is... Um, there is no reason to do it alone. We are not in a world where you have to sit in a garret by yourself <laughs> and write books and throw them in the drawer and hope someday <laughs> somebody will come out and figure everything out yourself mm -hmm. because there is so much community. And I knew that instinctively because I didn't start writing my book until after I sold my PR agency. And I knew that I'd been a consultant and I thought, all right, I'm not starting over here. I'm, but I'm not starting at the bottom. So what would be the most efficient thing for me to do? And I got involved with a program at the University of Chicago. Um, and you meet other people that are at the same stage and above, and you accelerate much faster. So there's no reason to go it alone. There's community everywhere, and the community will stay with you through all of your books. You know, it's oh, like, that's what was, a beautiful... So, we're all really hungry for community right now. Right. And the community online, I was just in a panel two nights ago where I used my new headphones. Yes. Um, <laughs> on a panel two nights ago where three people had all written, interestingly enough, books about the same time frame, 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. And we were talking to a whole room full of people for various reasons. Some wanted to know how we've had the gall to write a book. How did we start it? Most of them wanted to know about the era we were writing about, and some wanted to know about the technique and the story itself, the characters. How did you get that character? Why did you have Judy do this? Um, it was, everyone's very curious. I do think that, that um, 
saying I want to write a book someday is something that many, many, many people say. They have no idea how hard it is, but I think it's an aspiration. You don't usually say, I'd like to paint someday. You know, <laughs> I'd like to, you know, start a company, you know, there's start a company. There are people to do those things, but across all things, lots of people are like, wow, I'd like to write a book someday. Mm -hmm. And and now there's a lot of community that can help you go from, is that a pie in the sky aspiration that makes sense for you and your skills and your interests or not? You know, mm -hmm. and you can find out and, and get the kind of support you're looking for. And do you offer some of this uh, advice on your blog and on your website? I am not. Um, I am not in the I don't mentor and um, and coach people officially. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason is because I am in this last third and I feel particularly with this pandemic, I feel the clock of time coming down. Yes. And I've, I feel like I've got, you know, 25, 20 to 25 years, things, fingers crossed. And I have a lot of books that I want to write myself. Uh -huh. But, but I take advantage of all these things. And I see that other people are, are going there. You know, mm -hmm. um, so yes, no, it's not what I do. What I'd like people to come to my website for readadragonette.com, by the way, is mm -hmm. that I have, I have a blog that comments on the world through the voices of my, or through the perspective of the character of my book. Like many of them have been, this is 50 years from the setting of the v Vietnam War. So it's about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and the, Kent State and it's the historical stuff, but it's also how on earth do you deal with the pressures of what's going on? I just wrote a very funny one about the pandemic. So mm -hmm. it's about, my blog is about my voice mm -hmm. and I want readers to hear my voice and then want to hear more from me because I have more things to say and they're going to be coming out of me as fast as I can get them out. Oh, I love that. I love yeah. that idea that you're just sort of blossoming and, and you know, needing to get it out there. And uh, that's a it's a great uh it's a, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that for you to that you have so much material and so much you want to uh, bring to the world well this has always been my avocation so this is my third career but it's my avocation was always to write and then i also think again this point in your life is the very best time to do something like this because you do have the experience i call these my interpretive years <laughs> So, I love you know, that. So I can really think about the things that happened, like your question before about the rioting today versus the rioting. I have, I mean, it's, I've been through that. I can put those things together and see what is the lesson we learn here? What is the commonality? Um, how can we keep the hamster wheel of history from spinning? Can we, can we just like, you know, take a wrench and flatten it out mm -hmm. so we can get forward and stay forward? That's, that's my, if I had a legacy, that would be it. Is to is to straighten out that um, the wheel of history, and use my personal experience to help people get along. It. I think that's, that's that's really what I'm doing. But that said, what I'm writing is not pedantic. You know, this is mm -hmm. the 14th of September is a real life flesh and blood story of a yes. 19 year old girl, who everyone can relate to because we've all been 19, and she had. It's a coming of age story, but because it happens during wartime and all of these pressures she has to grow up so fast 
it's really a coming of conscience story because she has to determine her character, not just how she's going to live as an adult, but who she's going to be for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then I'm doing one now with the generation we are that's a contemporary novel that has to do with, um, it's an homage to The Sun Also Rises. And it's, remember, that was expats after World War One in, yes. in Paris, lost generation looking for meaning, bullfighting and fiesta way of life. And mine is older expats now in the current um, expat capital of the world, which is San Miguel de Allende, Mexico, who have all come there with their last dream. Uh And the tagline is, and it says everything about what we've been talking about, again, my generation, the, the working tagline is for a generation of dreamers, this last one really has to come true. Aha. Uh-huh. So if oh. that doesn't get you, then ah, you're too young. that's a then, hook. That's then you're a too, hook. If that doesn't get you, you're too young to be listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> so much, so, so much good stuff, Rita. So much interesting. You know, there's history here. There's personal psychology about how do I navigate this? What do I do about it as a white woman? Where's my place in this? There's so much... Uh, so much depth here. Uh, tell again, tell our audience where they can find you and where they can follow you. Okay, the I am on all of the major platforms. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but I would say go to my website, which is mm-hmm. RitaDragonette.com, and you'll mm-hmm. see Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, I do do a regular blog. If you sign up for my mailing list, like I said, I think I have a unique and witty voice, and <laughs> hope that you will um, follow me and then kind of be part of that journey. It also has a page for book clubs. Um, The 14th of September, I have found, is an incredible discussion book because, as you said, there's so many different things in it. Mm -hmm. History, mother, daughter, girlfriends, first love, bad boys. Mean girls. (laughs) Mean girls. The mean girls, right? We all remember those. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the teenage uh, experience thrown into the frying pan of a war, but it all takes place on campus. So it's Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in battlefields that are not on the front. So mm-hmm. the, the book is um, the 14th of September. It's available from She Writes Press. You can get it um, anywhere you buy your books, but mm-hmm. I would particularly like you to pursue in- and support independent mm-hmm. bookstores, particularly at this time. Yes. They, are the ones, they are the ones who foster really um, avid enthusiast readers and they need our support. Um, and my other works are coming out. I'm also work- working on a memoir and essays. Beautiful. And Dragonette, D-R-A-G-O-N-E-T-T-E. Yes. The way to remember it is it's a little dragon. Oh, gosh. Yes. It's a little dragonette. Lovely. Lovely. It's a great name for a writer. And I thank my late husband every moment for that name. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, Rita, it's been a lovely and fascinating speaking with you. I've got my head spinning about uh, there's so many elements, as, as we said, about where are we as boomers looking at this and also having a step back and being interpretive um, and trying to make sense of, you know, here we are again. And what can mm-hmm. we learn so we don't keep spinning and having to relearn the same same lessons over and over again. Right, right. Mm -hmm. 
And if oh, you tell us, okay, you're saying, I don't want to learn anything. So mm -hmm. let's work together. Mm -hmm. Thank you let's so listen. much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used up. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, uh, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. <music>